to episode 308 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballPerspectives.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. We are going to uh, do as we did last week and split our email show into two nights and fill the first half of each night with a playoff banter. Uh, ben, how are you? Okay. Um, so you didn't read my recap yet, I assume? I did. Okay. So yesterday we had talked about whether there was a any real sort of method to try to determine whether it is the the, the pitchers or the hitters to blame for this string of uh, you know incredible pitching performances that we're seeing from the Tigers, and I kind of attempted to do that, mm-hmm. um, and so I wanted to just uh, mention that because we had talked about it uh, and see if you thought there was really any validity at all to it. Uh, well, do you want to describe what your methodology was? And people should just go read it if they subscribe to Baseball Perspectives, which they should do, but if not? Yeah, sure. So it's it's limited what I was able to look at, particularly, you know, in a fairly short period of time. But I figured if um, – I, I wanted to figure out a way to differentiate between the pitches that the, that the pitcher tried to make and then the pitches that, you know, were kind of mistakes. And if – he made the pitch that he intended to make that was like his pitch. I give him full credit and decide that, you know, you can't penalize the offense for not hitting the pitcher's pitch. But if you can identify the mistakes um, and the offense isn't hitting those mistakes, that that's on them. Mm -hmm. And also that um, you could sort of see whether the pitcher is actually making fewer mistakes than he usually would. So basically identified where the starters, uh, secondary pitches are intended to be based on patterns Mm -hmm. and I think that it's uh, maybe it's a leap but I don't think it's that much of a leap Uh, based based on kind of general pitching strategy and um, you know what I've been told I I think that you can basically assume that like almost all of a pitcher's sliders are supposed to end up in a fairly small zone and anything that's not in in that zone is probably a mistake and to some degree the same with change-ups and to some degree with, with curveballs so I looked at um, where, for instance, Max Scherzer's slider is supposed to be, with the presumption that it's always supposed to be in roughly the same place, and then uh, saw how often he missed that area. And I did that for all the secondary pitches that each pitcher made. Um, ignored fastballs, so there's a big, a big part of a pitcher's performance that I didn't do this for. I'll, you could conceivably do it by looking at the catcher's um, setup for every pitch, but that was too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as it turns out, the Tigers' three starters over the last three days have missed their targets with secondary pitches exactly as often as expected. And uh, those mistakes, calling them mistakes, uh, the Red Sox have basically had 75 or, or 80 mistakes on secondary pitches that they could have done something with, and they've done nothing there. Uh, in those 80 pitches that missed the, you know, the target um, they have not had a single hit mm-hmm. on those. So they basically, I, I thought it was, you know, the conclusion as much as there was one, and there probably wasn't one, but the conclusion as much as there was one is that the Tigers pitchers have been basically as good as they always are, at least with their secondary pitches, and the Red Sox have had lots of chances to hit baseballs and have not hit any baseballs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I found it pretty convincing. I mean, you you mentioned the things that it wouldn't capture, and those things could be important, but... Um, I don't know how else to to do it quickly. At least I I considered doing something like it in 
Zach Greinke's last start because his his command seemed so good. And as I was watching just kind of casually, it seemed like he really wasn't missing the target by much at all. Uh, and so I, I thought maybe I'll go back and I'll watch every pitch and I'll see how many he missed the target on and I'll I'll set some some amount that he missed the target by and I'll classify each pitch as as a miss or a hit. Um, ultimately, I <laughs> you're making some interesting noises over there. Um, Am I? Yeah. What are the noise? What are they? What does it sound like? It's just some static sounds. Oh, sorry. Stop now. Mouse. Uh, okay. Um, so ultimately, I didn't do that, not because it would have been that much work, really, but because I don't think the results would have been conclusive. I wouldn't have known what his baseline for hitting the target was, so I, I would have had nothing to compare it to. I could have guessed whether it was better than average or not, but I, I wouldn't have really known. So there isn't really a, a great way to do that, I guess, unless you have that command FX technology that tracks the catcher's glove. Um, but otherwise, I mean, with the, with the data that we have available on a, on short notice with a quick turnaround, I thought it was, it was pretty good. I, I'm kind of, I'd kind of like to see it for every other playoff team now because really none of them is hitting. Yeah, no, it's true. And the, yeah, you're right. I mean, the, the big thing is that even if you know, I mean, you don't know that pitcher's command profile. You also don't really know the average pitcher's command profile. I mean, if you actually wanted to do this by hand, it would be, it would be impossible. Yeah. And you'd have no. The other thing is that um, you can't necessarily take as a given that the catcher's target is the catcher's target. Mm-hmm. Um, it's certainly suggestive. It's the best information that we have. Um, but there's all sorts of reasons that catchers don't necessarily uh, set up. A, exactly where they want it, and B, with like kind of any idea that the pitcher's going to hit that exact spot. I mean, basically, the catcher, in a lot of cases, is just giving a general zone the cat that the pitcher's supposed to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, like, for instance, if a pitcher has a lot of movement on his, you know, a ton of movement on his two-seamer, is the catcher setting up where he wants the pitcher to start the ball, or where he wants the pitcher to, you know, to for, where, the, where he wants the pitch to end up? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a catcher might find that for some pitchers it's better to set up, uh, you know, kind of close to the middle of the plate and let the natural movement carry it away. So uh, I'm not even sure that you could do it with the targets. Yeah. Um, okay. So you you watched the Tigers Red Sox game. Uh, you asked me the other day which pitcher I thought was was more effective in the in the Sanchez game, right? So, yeah. which which pitcher did you think was more effective uh, in the the Red Sox Tigers game? I did not ask you that. I asked you who was more effective between Sanchez and Scherzer. Oh yes, that's right. Okay, so who was well? Which which starter was more effective tonight? Because they were they were both pretty good. Uh, I thought that Verlander looked slightly better. Um, <laughs> he but, usually does look look better. At least he's he's Verlander. He's handsome. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And John Lackey's not. <laughs> he's lost some weight, but uh, there's only so much you can can do with what he's working with. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean they 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 both looked great. I've I've. You know, I watched Lackey for a few years closely, and I don't think I've necessarily ever seen him look that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really something. Yeah. Um, well, I I watched the the Dodgers Cardinals game, and it was like a, it felt like a high offense game. <laughs> it was 
4-2 and there were actual home runs. People hit the ball over the fence. It, it felt like 99 cores or something, but in the end it was it was 4-2, which is generally considered a pitcher's duel or close to it. Um, but that's it's kind of a lot of runs for for this postseason. And you you updated the the median pitching line for October in your recap of that game, and it got even better since since the Mike Miner line you quoted yesterday. Um, it did. I feel like I must have made it. I, I I also looked at what that the average game score is now 59. The median game score is now 59, and I looked at what a 59 game score has has done in the regular season, and it's like uh, 630 winning percentage for the team, um, which is basically like every starting pitcher is now like 100 and you know turning their team into a 101 win team basically, and they're doing it against postseason offenses. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I should probably, before I go to bed, I should double check my play index mm-hmm. search because that seems high. Uh, yeah, Does it, it not seem high to you? It's high, but not shockingly so. I mean, we're seeing one nothing games every night. So, but I'm just talking the median. The median is yeah. is is really. I mean, the the teams that they're they're like 250 and 100. <laughs> with a with a game score of fifty nine, hmm. that's a huge it's a huge winning percentage. Yeah, um, maybe I, I don't know. And yet the the starters who pitch best often aren't winning these games. Um, Did you think you'd see Carlos Marmol in a two run no, this postseason? I, I wrote down in my notes Carlos Marmol pitching in the playoffs verbatim. Yeah. That's what I wrote because it was so so surprising to see him in a close game fairly. Fairly high leverage. I mean, not that high leverage because at that point, the odds are very much against the losing team coming back. But still, seeing Marmol, um, but he was he was okay. Yeah, it's a little bit of an optical illusion where a two-run lead. Yeah, it seems. Is, <laughs> yeah, it's not nearly as close as it seems when you're trailing by two. Yeah, yeah. Um, Russell Carlton wrote an article about that about whether it makes sense to use your closer when you're like one run down or something because you could come back and he he found that it's even even one run down the odds are very much against a comeback um yeah yeah so uh yeah uh oral hersheiser was like crushing manningly for that decision basically mm. on the radio um and saying you know you gotta you, you just gotta play for today tomorrow you know if you're going down three one you gotta you got to treat today like a must win and you worry about tomorrow tomorrow and you just you have to do everything you can to win today but um i mean obviously there's a point where that's not true if he was down 10-1 i don't think oral would be saying bring in brian wilson mm-hmm. uh, so yeah 4-2 is not as close as as probably it, it felt mm-hmm. um, but also it, it did seem sort of odd yeah i didn't i just didn't expect normal to pitch at all nope me neither um so is there a takeaway from this this incredible pitching that we've seen so far does it mean anything shadows <laughs> that certainly seemed to be the case in in the one start that i wrote about the afternoon start at bush where the shadows were were in between the mound and home plate or they were covering the whole infield and that seems it is like interesting a because yeah i mean it's not like these are all pitching and defense teams either i mean the tigers and the red sox i think led the al in ops plus and the cardinals and the dodgers i, I think might have led, led the nl yeah they're, they're definitely the two best offenses so these are yeah. the these are basically the four best offenses in baseball this mm-hmm. is not 
like if it were the Pirates and the um, you know the Orioles or something in the playoffs, you could expect you know something like normal offense or or less. But uh, yeah, I mean these are elite offensive teams. Maybe there's just no such thing as an elite offensive team right now. Uh, I don't know. It kind of bothers me because I feel like it supports the the pitching and defense win in the playoffs narrative, which I, I don't really subscribe to. I mean, I, those things do win in the playoffs, but offense wins in the playoffs too. Offense is good. Scoring runs is good. Uh, but all these low-scoring games, I feel like, is just kind of reinforcing the the idea that offense is irrelevant and all that matters is having aces and, and good defenses, even though the aces have not won some of these games despite pitching well. Um, it feels like a large number of games have turned on on home runs. These close games have turned on home runs. And so that's kind of nice as a narrative buster. Not that, not that yeah. anybody who, pedal, who peddles the, uh, the no homers narrative uh, will remember this in a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but there have been a lot of, you know, like, like today's game, solo shot uh, in an otherwise offenseless game was yeah. all the difference. Yesterday's game, it was... It was essentially the the Red Sox sitting around doing nothing until they got a big home run. Mm-hmm. That's happened quite a bit. Yep, and Matt Holliday's homer tonight, uh, although that was the first homer in this series, and in the first three games of the series, you could say that it was mental mistakes or defensive mistakes that allowed teams to score, like past balls and people not getting in proper fielding position or not getting good jumps on, on fly balls seemed to be well, it was, pivotal plays. Yeah. But Yeah, the first game turned on a on a Carlos Beltran double that was, you know, missed being a home run by like a foot. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's not a, a huge distinction there. Although you could argue that, uh, you know, a team, a, the Dodgers could have won if they'd had a, a real center fielder. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I guess there, there have been in, in the series that I'm recapping, at least there have been a lot of mental mistakes or lapses in judgment by veterans, uh, which is, Interesting, because you kind of hear broadcasters tie themselves into knots explaining how that happens. Because if, you know, if Puig makes a mistake or something, or or someone young who's in his first playoffs, it's, it's so, it's his first playoffs, he's young, the nerves got to him, whatever. Uh, but we've seen pretty terrible base running plays by Daniel Descalso and Nick Puto, like, you know, the ultimate scrapper veteran uh, know-how guy so I don't know I don't know what that means but I guess it kind of yeah nothing but <laughs> Russell Russell also wrote an article about the value of of previous postseason experience and found that there there wasn't any really so I guess that sort of supports that yeah all right uh email uh sure okay. um good okay do you have an right. I have a couple here Okay. What well, I want to there's one that I want to get to because um, a couple of weeks ago I actually emailed it to us to try to get you to answer it. Oh no! And you you ref- <laughs> yeah you you refused and and then randomly this week two people asked almost the exact same question. Um, so Michael says, "What if baseball were played until a team scored a set amount of runs, five runs, ten runs, whatever, instead of the current construct of trying to score more runs than your opponent while exhausting a finite number of outs?" Uh, he asks how that would change the game. And then Dan Brooks independently uh, writes, um, 
1857, under the Knickerbocker rules, which governed until 1872, the current nine-inning format was adopted, replacing the previous rule that the first team to score 21 runs won. So, of course, 21 runs to win is absurdly high for the modern game. What if the total was something like four? Games would continue until one team scored four. If the visiting team reached four or greater, the home team would have the opportunity to exceed or match the total. If the latter occurred, the rules would change to the current extra innings format. There'd be no extra innings because the concept of a nine-inning game would be erased if it took 15 innings to get to four. So be it. Four seems right because it would mean that all grand slams were effectively game-winning hits and seemed close enough to the current nine-inning total that the length of games would not vary too wildly. What would happen to baseball? And my question was actually slightly different. My question was, if the rule was that you played until a certain number of runs and the home team got to decide before the game what that number was going to be, what you thought the most common number would be. Mm. Uh, So uh, I guess I'm more interested in my question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm more interested in the other people's question. Um, Yeah, okay. Well, what do you you think about the... uh, uh, well, would you, I guess, would you start with your, your closer? Would you even would uh, you have starting yeah. closers anymore? Would you, I mean, you wouldn't want anyone to, right. to go through the lineup more than, it, de- uh, it depends yeah. how, how many runs you're playing to, but if you, if you're playing to, well, uh, I don't know. Well, the idea of leverage, the idea of leverage would be completely turned upside down. Yeah. Right. So the question is, when would let the high leverage kind of kick in? Would it be from the first out? Because four runs is really, that, that can happen in a flash. Yeah. Um, Good. Right, yeah. But on the other hand, maybe you wait until they have, you know, two. I guess, I don't know. I mean, it, you, you wouldn't be able to use your closer every day or your best pitcher every day. So is there is there any time that's more valuable than than any other time? Would you wait oh. until until they allow until they have three before they before you the uh, the high leverage kicks in, or does it start from mm-hmm. the first the first the first pitch? Seems like it might start from the first. pitch. Yeah, I think it it would start pretty early. And I don't know if you had if you're playing to four runs. Was Dan saying that the length of the game would be roughly equivalent to nine innings? I feel like it would be. Well, it might be. I well, guess on if, average. Yeah, I guess it, it might be if you were using your best pitchers at the start of the game and trying to prevent people from scoring, then then it would take a while to get to four. Whereas, well, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe you would just have to kind of revolutionize rotations and just uh, not have starters so much and just have yeah. people pitching as often as they possibly could. You'd... I guess there'd be a lot of value in having rubber-armed pitchers who could just go day after day and be effective. Yeah, I don't think you'd have anything like the current situation where you'd have you'd expect a pitcher to pitch as long as he could, because that model is based on the idea that um, you have to make it through a long season, and because of that, you're willing to absorb a certain number of games where four, five, six runs are scored. Uh, you know, you throw a starter out there for seven innings. And you sort of accept that you're going to give up four or five, you know, probably in that game, unless he's super, super on. Um, but you do it because there's too many innings to, to go, you know, all out every game. Mm-hmm. If you were playing to a score like four, then four would be automatic death. You, you just couldn't afford to let a guy pitch seven innings and give up three runs. You, it, it just would be, mm-hmm. the margin would be too small. So I think it would be all 
you know, at, at most you probably would see guys uh, on average pitching three or four innings, maybe occasionally more if he was super on, but probably not. So would you carry more pitchers or fewer pitchers? I think more. I think you'd carry a lot more. I mean, I think you'd carry a ton more, mainly because it's it, the the average game would no longer be. I mean, the average, the median game might be nine innings, but you know, roughly, roughly half the games, if it's scaled to 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 the standard game, then half the games would go longer than nine. You half the games would basically go extra innings, mm-hmm. and and every game could go thirty innings or. Or something. I mean, we see games go extra innings with fewer than four runs scored all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, just think about every one nothing game. Like tonight, how long would that game have gone mm-hmm. if if you had to score four? So, so basically, every day would be a potential fifteen to twenty five inning game. So, yeah, tons of pitchers. Like I could see even with a twenty five man roster, I could see carrying two bench position players, <laughs> like a basically a, a catcher. Uh, who can do a bunch of other things, and an emergency catcher who can do a bunch of other things, uh-huh. and that's it. This baseball sounds bad. I love it. <laughs> I don't want this baseball. Um, so that's for you. Uh, I mean, it, the downside is just that you would, you you know, you'd have a lot of games end in twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. That would just really suck. Mm-hmm. Like, I, there's no, there's no real um, logistics for how to have. I guess I, I mean, boxing has that, but boxing has, you know, entire cards. Right, so there's like six fights in a night or whatever. Um, the main event is, you know, it's a bummer when it goes only one round, but at least you've had a whole night of activity before that, as as I understand it, at least. But baseball, there's no really logistical way for bringing in thirty thousand people and then telling them to go home in fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, but so, what would you? What just? Uh, what would your? What would the home team generally pick if they had the choice? <laughs> Uh, what would be the most common number? Probably a really low number, right? Because players wouldn't want to play 30 innings. Um, well, but on, on the other hand, the longer the game goes, the more likely the true talent is going to emerge. And if the home team has the edge, the, the longer the game, the more their edge grows. If they have the edge in every inning, then a 30-inning game is much more likely to benefit them than a you know a three-inning game. Yeah, but, I, but I the home team is only going to want... Only going to have the edge half the time. No, the home true team has the edge twice. in every. The home team has the edge in every inning. Oh. Mm. yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, it seems like more of a collective bargaining issue because I don't think players would want to play long games or have the potential to play long games. But if it were decided by a general manager who put a team together, then yeah, I guess. I guess that seems like about the right balance. What did you say, seven? I said seven. Yeah, sure. Something in that range. Seven's a you know it's a it's a lucky number. It's a uh, it's a it's a it's a number with baseball history. I mean, seven or nine or three would make the most sense, right? Yeah. I guess. Sure. All right. Okay. Which one did you want? You got answer? that question answered. Uh, well, I wanted to mention quickly this question from Tim. Do you think that Carlos Beltran would have taken less offense if Puig had run hard out of the box and ended up with an inside-the-park home run? Which is kind of I think, an interesting yeah. question because in this case, at least, you could... I mean, Puig made it to third standing up, so you could make the case that if he had been busting it out of the box, he might have made it around the bases. 
so in this case, maybe maybe his watching his triple helped the Cardinals. I, I think that um, that Beltron would have taken less offensive if he had caught the ball. Like I, I think that it was it was mostly just a, a a little bit of a petty envious response to it. It was um, just a way of complaining about something that didn't go Beltron's way. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think if he had caught the ball, <laughs> then then he would nobody would have said anything. They would have sort of well maybe maybe because it's Puig that they would have, but um, that. You know, I think Beltron probably was annoyed that A, that was a you know big play, and B, you know, it's not that Beltron misplayed it exactly, but kind of a, you know a little bit where the you know the ball took a funny hop on him and he had to run after it like a like a darn fool. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I just think he was venting more than anything. I feel like no hitter goes from looking lost to looking locked in more quickly than Puig, and I don't know whether it's whether it's deceptive and I'm just reading into it or not, because when he started the series, whatever it was, 0 for 10 with six strikeouts, everyone said, oh, Puig looks lost, and and he did. I mean, he was chasing pitches that he sort of had chased earlier in the season, and I, I did that article when he started laying off those pitches and started taking some walks, and it seemed like a, a really clear change in approach, and then the first couple of games here, he was he was lunging and chasing at those pitches again, and it sort of seemed like he would just swing at anything, and you could get him out really easily. And then all of a sudden, he stopped doing that, and it was like you could almost just see the moment when he decided to stop or figured out how to stop, and he took this took this close pitch. I think it was like a two-two curve or something from Wainwright, and he just let it go. And he was like talking to himself and smiling at the bench saying like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not swinging at those anymore. And then suddenly he, he just looked locked in and got a couple hits tonight. And maybe I'm completely, completely imagining it, but just kind of reading body language and reading approach. It's really easy to look at him and feel like you can kind of tell whether he's, whether he has a good approach or doesn't. Well, you gotta you ought to test yourself. You ought to, from this point on. Yeah. You ought to uh, before he comes up, you should study his body language mm-hmm. and predict whether he's going to get a hit or not, and uh, then see if you're better at predicting than in a random chance. Unfortunately, we might have a one-game sample to test myself, but maybe I'll. You could do it. You could do it next year. You could yeah. do it all year. Yeah, maybe I will. I think I would guess that this is just a, this is more of a diagnosis issue than a uh, than an actual epidemic I, I I would guess that this is probably mostly due to the fact that um, anytime Puig is doing well or not doing well you hear about it like I I hear about it. I, I feel like I hear about every slump he has yep. and people talking about what you know how the league has made an adjustment or whatever and I hear about every hot streak he has mm-hmm. and people talking about how what a phenom he is so you're just you're very aware of the shifts in a way that you're not aware of the shifts that you know Juan Francisco uh, goes through or um, or something like that. Uh, and also you are very you are since you have looked at him mm-hmm. in detail, you are also able to diagnose him to some degree. So you're probably self-diagnosing or not self-diagnosing, but diagnosing on your own more than you would for a normal hitter that you haven't looked at. Yeah, probably. I don't know whether I'm diagnosing more accurately or not, but yeah. Um, were there any questions that you wanted to get to? Because I, I had one more. Go ahead. Sure. Uh, well, this was the question that you responded and said that you wanted to answer. 
Um, oh, shoot. This one's a little bit of a long one. Let's do this one tomorrow. Uh, okay. I have, an, I have one that I think is a good one for tonight. Okay. It's time. Sure. So this is, from, this is from Wes, who says, Watching the Red Sox-Tigers in a power delay, I couldn't help but wonder what's the rule on a power outage in the middle of a play. Imagine we're in the 25th inning at midnight. Tigers down by three with the bases loaded, two outs. Miguel pops up. The lights go out. Nobody can find the ball, and it turns into an infield grand slam. Does it stand? Do they replay the pitch? Dead ball single. Uh, so I spent uh, about 25 minutes searching for every keyword I could think of that might lead to an answer uh, in the rules book, and I couldn't. I mean, there are lots of sections about lights and power outages, and none address uh, interruption of play mid-play. In fact, nothing, inter- nothing that I could find at all addresses interruption of play mid-play, except for player injury, where we've We've talked about it in the past. The player has the right to any base that he has the right to if he's injured. But um, it doesn't seem to be addressed, which leads me to think that, um, uh, well, it probably leads me to think that it would be considered uh, like ballpark failure the same way that like if the ball hits the bullpens, you know, the bullpen bench or something like that, it, it, it's a dead ball and the umpire has some discretion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would feel like almost anything that's super weird, uh, the umpire would have a tremendous amount of discretion, although, you know, in a situation where uh, an entire series is hinging on it, there'd be a lot of pressure on them to, to not just simply declare declare some rule arbitrarily. But I'm curious um, what you think would be the most appropriate. What would you want to see happen? Or if you were the umpire, what would you do if there was no guidance from the rule? Uh, do-over? Do over entire pitch. <laughs> um, the question is, when does the play, like how far along does the play have to be before you no longer do it over? I mean, what if he hit a line drive down the right field line mm-hmm. for you know a double or a certain double, maybe a triple, and it's in the corner? You wouldn't do over at that point once the play is sort of yeah, determined. Right. So how far along would the play have to be before you would say it stands and and simply use umpire's discretion to figure out? what the result would have been uh well i don't know it it would vary based on the play but i guess just kind of the point where the outcome is no longer in doubt really right and that could be different points depending on the play but um yeah i mean if the ball is down and it's clearly going to be a hit already i I guess there there could be a question about whether the guy's going to get to second or third or something but there's no question about whether it's going to be a hit so i would i would let that stand um mm-hmm. but if it's the pitch is on the way to home plate i would i would do do that over or i don't know a guy a guy hits a fly ball and it's not clear whether it's going to fall or not i would probably do that over i i think i'd let it go i think i'd just let it play <laughs> if he can circle in the dark i think he I think he has the right. <laughs> if there's nothing in the rule book that's, that, that allows for this, um, you know, I mean, if, if all of a sudden, uh, if he hits the ball and all of a sudden, uh, you know, a, a tornado appeared, mm-hmm. uh, they wouldn't call it in the middle of the play. They'd say, fight through it until the play's over. Uh, pitch black stadium, I think, I think they got to go. I mean, the, the problem is that the umpire wouldn't be able to see anybody doing anything so like you wouldn't know when the ball like like the second baseman might have the ball and tag the runner but the umpire wouldn't see it 
Yeah, and so then, I mean, if, if the umpire is not able to actually do his job, then I guess he has to call dead ball, timeout, and probably make the the ruling of whether the the play had been determined or not. Like you're saying, mm-hmm. I'd like to say just play on, but now that I think about it, uh, the likelihood of shenanigans it, it go, there's a point where it goes from madcap to um, to lawlessness mm-hmm. and I'm excited about the madcap I'm not excited about uh, like like potential riots on the field mm-hmm. like it's, it'd be like that episode of Say by the Bell when the lights either they do the murder mystery <laughs> and then the lights go out and they turn the lights on and, and somebody's been killed yeah like I just I don't want that happening. <laughs> Yeah, no, that would that would be bad. Um, yeah, I feel. Do you want to attempt to answer the question about platoon splits? Because it's a really good question. Do you do you know the answer? <sighs> sort the of. The answer is out there. It's, the answer is out there. We just haven't. It's a, I, it's a, I didn't put the time well, to find it. But I I sent it to some smart people, and even they weren't sure. Um, yeah. So I don't. Go ahead and answer. It. We'll we'll try it just because it's it's timely and playoff related. Uh, so this comes from AJ in Boston. In light of last night's game, and this was a day ago, so he's talking about the the Ortiz home run game. In light of last night's game, I have a question regarding platoon splits. The Tigers brought in Joaquin Benoit, right-handed pitcher, instead of Phil Koch, left-handed pitcher, to face David Ortiz, left-handed hitter. Many have said that they agreed with the decision, noting that Benoit has been better against left-handed batters than against right-handed hitters, which is what we said. That was our snap judgment. On the podcast, in an article on Grantland, however, Jonah Carey questioned the decision, noting that Ortiz has been better against right-handed pitchers than against left-handed pitchers. My question, therefore, is which of these matters more? In essence, does the platoon advantage or disadvantage come more from the pitcher's skill set or the hitter's skill set? Uh, so this is kind of a complicated question. So I, I tried to. Uh, I went to the book because the book is... Uh, yeah, I'm like 100% sure that that has been answered well, at some point by, by one of them. So I, I skimmed the, the book's chapter on platoon splits. What it does say is that the variation in platoon splits is much higher for pitchers than for hitters. Um, and it also said that, I guess because of that, pitchers' platoon splits can be reliably measured much more easily than those of right or left-handed hitters. A right-hander's pitcher, a right-handed pitcher's platoon split is reasonably accurate once he has around 700 plate appearances against left-handed hitters. For a lefty, the number is about 450. So That doesn't answer the question yeah, at all. Yeah, it though. doesn't really answer the question. So that you know you know what a what a pitcher's true platoon splits are much more quickly than you know for a hitter. Um, but in this case, you have David Ortiz, who's been playing forever and, and has many thousands of play appearances. And so you know what, what his platoon splits are. You know what Benoit's are. Uh, I, I don't think it directly addresses which, which party is more responsible for the split. I would, I would say that if you're trying to, to figure out what the expectation for the, the plate appearance is, it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, if you're just trying to figure out what the better matchup is, then you you calculate what each guy's expected performance is against a pitcher or, or hitter of whatever handedness, 
and you you can calculate and regress and you regress a certain amount based on whether it's a pitcher or a hitter or a left-handed pitcher or a right-handed pitcher and you figure out what the expectation for each player is and I haven't done that math but you you could do that math to figure out whether Benoit was the better matchup for Ortiz than than Coke um, but that's I mean to to answer whether whether Leland's move was the right move or whether Coke would have been a better move that's that's all you need to know right just what their observed performance is and over what sample size and then regress it and and calculate what the expectation for each plate appearance is right I don't know whether that answers the question either but um, that's what you would do so so um, all right so David Ortiz has a 900 OPS against right-handers and uh, and Joaquin Benoit has a 600 OPS against left-handers um, you're you're treating you're treating Benoit basically just as um, well uh, you're treating Benoit as a right-hander. You're you're saying that David Ortiz's true talent against Benoit and Benoit's true talent against Ortiz are the same, even though each has kind of individual splits. Uh, I, I mean, is 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 Benoit a right-hander? Yeah. Um, I mean, if, if Benoit's stuff works like a left-hander's stuff. Then should I, you be comparing? Yeah, I mean, I should think you even be yeah right because because with pitchers it's not you know it's hard to say why certain hitters have certain platoon splits they just they don't see the bell see the ball as well or whatever or something about their stance or their swing or their setup and it's kind of hard to pinpoint but with pitchers you can I mean you can identify you can project what a pitcher's platoon splits will be without ever even seeing him without having any record of performance if you just know like what his arm angle is you know is he a side armor is he is he over the top uh what pitches does he throw you know does he does he throw pitches that that tend to have big platoon splits or or don't um yeah like you know the pitchers who don't have big platoon splits will tend to rely more on on fastballs or something and the big platoon splits will be like slider guys and so you can kind of project based on that, and so maybe maybe the profile of the pitcher is what matters, or or what matters more than the actual handedness, or at least that that plays a big part. The repertoire it plays some part, but the angle also plays a big part. The yep. angle at which he throws. I mean, I yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer to this. I I, I feel like maybe maybe I mean I've definitely seen the answer to this somewhere in the distant past. But it's conceivable that I saw it so far in the past that it doesn't actually represent um that I mean, you know, a lot of things got said, you know, five, 8 years ago yeah. that we don't really follow anymore. Mm-hmm. So it might have just been something that I saw tossed off as a solution to this problem that would now look look wrong. Um I'm sure the answer's out there. I mean, somebody somebody can answer it. Who do you said you asked smart <laughs> yeah, people, or did you? I did. Yeah, usually when we don't know the answer to something, we just wait for Russell to listen to the podcast and tell us what the answer is. But I already asked him, and he doesn't know. Huh. So that's scary. Uh huh. <laughs> and I I, bet, I asked Colin also. So if you I bet Tango knows. 
Tango might know. I bet, ta- I, I bet Tango's done a post on this. I feel like Tango's done a post on this. Well, maybe I'll maybe I'll email him. But if anyone listening has a has a better answer than what we've given, let us know. Um, and so we'll probably doing we'll probably be doing a, a part email show again tomorrow, so you can get your questions in again for that at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. We'll be back with more emails and more playoff talk tomorrow.